0: Good morning. morning. We're continuing this morning in our study of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a moment, you could turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, which we'll get into in just a minute. Because first I want to tell a short story. It's a true story that happened to me a few years ago in the business world. I was working for a major energy company, and my role in the company at that time was to build a major energy project in a foreign country. We had a partner in this project. It was a small company owned by a rich family who lived in that country, and they had strong connections with the local government. And so their job was to help us get government approval for the project. At the same time, they were also out spending money on things like economic studies, market studies, some limited engineering studies, some traveling around, meeting with officials and government employees on behalf of the project, and all the costs and expenses associated with those activities uh, my company was to pay for them. So they would submit these invoices and we would pay them. But over time, I started to get a little bit suspicious. Sometimes these invoices seemed a little bit high. And some of his activities didn't seem like they were directly aligned with what we wanted to do. And so I was a little suspicious. I also didn't like the guy who ran the company. He was a little too young, a little too confident, a little too arrogant, a little too rich, way too stupid. And he drank too much, he partied too much, and he talked too loud. And so the combination of these invoices and his personality made me wonder whether he was a crook. But I didn't have any ability. I wasn't able to find any evidence. I told my guys, I said, watch his invoices very carefully. And they did. And we were all suspicious of his invoices, but we could never find any solid evidence. Meanwhile, I was walk, marching around uh, this country, and I kept bumping into people randomly in the business who said, oh, you're Mr. Hattenberger, you're with such and such, you're working on this project. Yeah, yeah, you've got this guy for a partner. I said, yeah. He said, he's a crook. I said, what? More than a dozen people came up to me unsolicited and told me that our partner was a crook. So over a two-year period, you can imagine that my, my sense of discomfort with having this guy as a partner went down, 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 and... Finally, two years later, the project died. We weren't able to get government approval. My partner didn't do his job very well, and the project was dead. So we were wrapping things up, putting all it to bed, and uh, all of a sudden I get an invoice. Sorry, I didn't get one invoice from him. I got 89 invoices from him, totaling $2 million. He said, well, I hadn't really had a chance to submit them before, but I want to get paid. So now I was in a very uncomfortable position. I didn't trust the guy. I had suspicions about his invoices in the first place. The project is dead. I got $2 million worth of invoices, and he wants me to pay them. So I had a decision to make. I had two choices as I saw it. I could simply pay his invoices and move on. We'd spent $25 million on this project already. Another $2 million was no big deal. I'd never see the guy again. I could move on to another project. Or, I could follow my instincts and open up an investigation. Find out whether this $2 million worth of invoices was really right or not. So it was a difficult decision. I knew that if I simply paid him, that was the easy way to go. But if I knew the right thing to do was to open up an investigation, just my instincts said, but it was going to be messy. I had a feeling that if we started investigating him officially, he would sue us. He would file a lawsuit. I was also a little bit worried that the investigation might find out that I had done something wrong. That I might be liable in some way. So I had the easy way and I had the right way. I had the easy way and the right way. It was a difficult decision to make. I'm happy to say I chose the right way. We did not start an official investigation. I got the accounting department, the internal audit department... And the legal department, I drafted them in. And I said, here's the story. Can you help me? And they said, yeah, we can help you. The auditing, the, uh, the accounting and auditing guys audited his books. They went down to his offices and went through his own invoices and his own uh, sales receipts for all the work that he had done. He turned his office and set out. Our law department hired some private investigators who actually went into this country and started snooping around a little bit in his activities to find out if he had really done all the work that he had submitted invoices for. It got a little messy. Two things happened. One, he filed a lawsuit against me and the company. And two, we found out he was a crook. We found out that he had submitted several invoices, not all of them, but many invoices were fraudulent, or as I call them, bogus, either for more money than they had actually spent or for activities that never happened or for activities that had nothing to do with our project. Unfortunately, some of the bogus invoices I had already approved and paid, and so my company fired me. I did the right thing, I opened up an investigation because I wanted to protect the company's interest and my instincts were correct, but I wound up getting fired. Now, put yourself in my shoes for just a minute. How would you react to that? First Peter has a lot to say about that this morning. And before we do so, I'd just like to open us in a word of prayer. Lord God, You are a great God. You have revealed Your will through Your Word. And as we open it this morning, I pray that our hearts, mine first, will be open to what You have to say to us. Lord, we're about to address some radical commands from Your Word. Radical. Totally countercultural. And so as we pray each week upon week, Lord God, I pray that You'd help me to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to start out in verse 9. That's not where we're going to spend most of our time today, but I want to go back to verse 9 because it sets the context for what's going to follow in verses 18 and following. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, tells us who we are and what our purpose is. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that is God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who are we? Well, we're special. We're different. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called by God. We're different. Why do we exist? Well, what's our purpose? We are there to proclaim the excellencies of God. Or to put that differently, our role, our purpose in life is to glorify God. And then following this section, Peter follows up with several ways that we are to glorify God. And we talked about two of these the last couple weeks. Two weeks ago, Ski talked about avoiding worldliness, which is in verses 11 and 12. And then last week, Ski talked about submitting to authorities in verses 13 through 17. In the following weeks, we'll talk about wives and husbands in chapter 3. This morning, we're going to talk about Peter's commands in relationship to, uh, as Christian employees, in our relationship with our bosses. And that's the section we're going to cover today. So, turn with me to chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and I'll read that. Servants, be subject to your masters in all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust... So there's a lot of things packed into these eight verses. Peter really really kind of crams it in. And so what I want to do today in order to expound on that is really to answer four questions this morning. Four questions. The first question is, what are we commanded to do? The second question is, how or in what manner are we told to do it? The third question is, why are we commanded to do it? And the fourth question is, how can we possibly do this radical ridiculous command. Okay? Those are the four things we want to talk about this morning. So question one. What are we commanded to do? 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the word servants, I have to say right off the bat, he's talking now, it's other sections of, of Scripture, particularly Paul's epistles, he addresses slaves. The word here is not slaves, it's servants. Servants and their relationship to masters. And we're told to submit and to yield to our masters. In this context, he's really talking about employees. He's not talking about slaves here. He's talking about employees. People that actually get paid. So the command is to be subject or submit to and to yield to your master. And this, of course, follows on from last week's lesson where Skeet talked about submitting to all authorities. Now, Peter's drilling down into one here specifically. That's a relationship between an employee and his boss. Now, I have a trick question for you this morning. Think about yourselves in the context of this verse addressing servants. How many of you do you think it applies to you? Raise your hand if you think these verses apply to you. Okay, most of you. Now, I'm guessing that those of you who didn't raise your hands, didn't raise your hands because you don't have a job and a boss. Correct? Nod your heads. Yeah. Well, you're included also because, if you think about it, it's really talking about an authority structure under which you are to submit to authority. And so this morning, if you're a Christian employee working for a boss, yes, it applies to you. But if you're a child living in your house with your parents, it also applies to you. If you're a student while you're at school, it applies to you in your relationship with a teacher. If you're a member of this church, it applies to your relationship to the elders. And if you're a married woman, it applies to you in your relationship with your own husband. So, I think we're all in. Peter says to submit not only to the good and gentle bosses, but to the unjust bosses also. The unjust ones. Now, this is a difficult command and it's a challenge, but it's not radical. The radical stuff comes in a second. We're to submit to bad, crummy, crooked bosses, the jerk, the guy who's unfair, ungodly, unjust. That's the command here. And it's challenging, but the radical one comes next. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20. He says, For this is a gracious thing, When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter says you're to submit to your bad bosses, but you're also to endure justice, that is, to put up or to suffer, when you do good things and get punished for it unjustly. Endure suffering for doing good. Endure sorrows, Peter says. Stand firm without giving in to the pain or the unjust suffering for doing what is right or good or just. So you go to work tomorrow and you do the right thing and you do your job well and your boss doesn't treat you well. He punishes you for doing a good job. And it's unfair. Maybe he scolds you or reprimands you or sits down and has, a, has an uncomfortable chat with you and you feel as though that's unfair. And what does Peter tell us to do? He tells us to endure it, to put up with it, to take it on the chin, don't knuckle under. It's unfair, but endure it anyway, Peter says. Now, i got to stop for just a second and remind ourselves of what Peter's talking about being unjust. We have to be honest and sober about our judgment. Sometimes things are fair and we just don't feel like they're fair because our feelings are hurt, our egos are damaged. It's not what Peter's talking about here. If you do a bad job, Peter says, and you suffer for it, you deserve it. Most of the things we complain about in the office place, and I've been guilty of this myself, is that our bosses have actually been fair with us. It's just been uncomfortable and we don't like it so we tend to blame our boss sometimes when we get a bad performance appraisal for not doing our job properly. So we have to be careful. I sent an email to several Christian businessmen last week asking them if they could give me some examples of times in their careers where they have done the right thing and they've been punished or suffered for it in some way. I made the mistake of uh, sending it to a Christian businessman who used to work for me And after I hit the send button, I went, oh, wait, (laughs) he's going to send me back some horrible story about me, and I'm going to have to make a judgment of whether to share it with you this morning or not. Fortunately, he replied and said everything was good. I said, you're a liar. You're just being kind. So here are some of the responses. Uh, You're a paralegal working for a private law firm that charges their clients by the hour, and your boss comes to you and says times are tough. We need to overbill our clients. We need to charge them more than we actually worked, or we're going to lose money. Do it. And so you refuse. And the end of the year comes around, and the company did quite well. But you don't get a bonus. What do you do? You work for a paranoid, vindictive, insecure, jealous, control freak. That's a quote. (laughs) He gives you bad performance reviews, even though your performance... Last year was good. You did the same thing this year with a new boss, and it's bad. He chastises you, ridicules you, berates you, hounds your every move. Colleagues advise you, get out. Your boss is an incurable maniac. No, you stick with it. You pray for him. Things get worse. And then it starts to affect your health. Your blood pressure starts to go up. What do you do? You're a pediatrician serving as the head of the Department of Medicine at a major army hospital. I'm not going to mention who this is. (laughs) Really, no names here. Is that okay, Carl? (laughs) I told him I'd keep his name out of this one. The hospital's commander orders all the doctors to counsel pregnant teenage girls that abortion is okay and to prescribe morning-after pills. You and some of the other doctors refuse, and then you receive letters of reprimand, and some of the doctors are passed over for promotion. What do you do? Well, what do we normally do when our bosses treat us unfairly? Take us out of the context of the Bible and put ourselves right back in the workplace on Monday or probably Tuesday morning after we've forgotten about the sermon. How do we normally react? Well, I think we react the same way that our culture does. We moan, we whine, we cry, we blab the story to our co-workers, we slander our boss. We gossip, we hold a grudge, we complain to HR, we vow to get even. We gossip some more, we call in sick, we threaten to quit, we file a grievance, we hire a lawyer, we file a lawsuit, we find a new job. We do that. And that's what our culture says to do. And as Keith talked about last week, it's a challenge to listen to what the Bible says and not to get sucked into what our culture wants to do. Because what our culture says is that we have an acute, sensitized feeling that things in the office place have to be fair, right? It's gotta be fair. We have that ingrained into us from when we were children. Everything has to be fair. It's what our culture does. It's what our culture says, but our Bible doesn't say that. Our Bible says to endure injustice, put up with it when it's unfair. And it's radical, and it's absurd, it's preposterous, it's laughable, it's ridiculous. Because if you do this, people will ridicule you. Question number two. How or in what manner are we commanded to do this? It gets worse. The radical command becomes worse because Peter tells us to do it like Jesus. Follow Jesus' example, follow in Jesus' steps. First Peter two, twenty one to twenty three says very clearly, He says, For this for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, Jesus' death was, in my view, the worst example of injustice committed in the history of mankind. That the Son of God should be murdered. That was not just. Yes, it was an essential element in God's sovereign plan for our salvation, but it wasn't fair and it wasn't just. Jesus was innocent. He never committed a sin or broke a law. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to be punished. He was arrested. He was tried. He was found guilty on the basis of false witnesses. And then he was spit upon. He was ridiculed. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was flogged. And then they drove large spikes through his hands and his feet and hung them up on a cross and left him there to die a slow and painful death. And that was unjust. And Peter says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. So Peter says, follow Jesus' example. Well, how did Jesus respond? Well, you can read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Peter gives us a quick summary, just to remind us. He says in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23, talking about Jesus, he said he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so Peter here tells us four things that Jesus did. The first thing he says he did is he committed no sin. That's probably the first thing that we do when we're treated unfairly at the office. We sin. But Jesus didn't. He didn't slander anybody. He didn't gossip. He didn't complain or grumble or moan. He didn't file a lawsuit. What Jesus did was he stood up and he took the offense head on. Secondly, Peter says that he didn't deceive. He wasn't dishonest. He says no deceit was found in his mouth. He was truthful. He didn't lie and say, oh, no, no, you got it wrong. I didn't do that. He didn't try to blame somebody else. Ever do that at the office? He didn't act like a martyr and say, oh, gosh, look at me. Look what they've done to me. He didn't brag about how holy he was. He was honest. Read the Gospels. He admitted to the truth and he ignored the lies. uh, Thirdly, he says uh, Jesus did not revile in return. The word revile means to verbally abuse somebody. So when Jesus was verbally abused, he didn't verbally, verbally abuse back. He didn't rant or rave or shout or insult or retaliate or fight back or defend himself. He was silent. He didn't even open his mouth to defend himself. And then fourthly, Peter says that Jesus didn't threaten if ever there was a man in an unjust position who was in a strength, position of strength to threaten, Jesus was it. He didn't say, Stop this, I'm calling down a legion of angels to kill you with a fiery sword, but he could have done so. He didn't threaten them with God's wrath and say, You're going to hell for this. He was respectful, he was meek, he was submissive, he was compliant. So, Jesus left us an example of how to endure injustice. The command is endure injustice and do it like Jesus did. Which takes it up to a whole different plane, doesn't it? Think about it at the office place. It's radical, it's absurd, it's preposterous, it's laughable, it's ridiculous. If we do it, people will notice. You want to be different in the office place, people will notice. Question number three. Why are we commanded to endure injustice? Why? Well, Peter gives us two good reasons. First of all, he says we are called to act this way. You see that in verse 21. He said, For to this you have been called, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. In God's view, this behavior is expected of us. We're supposed to do this. God called us to do this. Why? Because we're different. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen race, a people called for God's purposes. We're aliens. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're not expected to live the same way our culture does, called act differently. The second reason is that we're commanded to do this is that Peter says that this behavior pleases God. Twice in this section, Peter says that it's a gracious thing. You see that in 19 and 20. He said, for this is a gracious thing. A gracious thing. When mindful of God, you you, you do this stuff. And at the end there it says, but if when you do good and suffer for, for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Gracious thing. Other translations will will translate it as a, as a commendable before God or, or finds favor with God or acceptable to God or meets with God's approval. It's a good thing. It's an extraordinary action that people will notice. But don't miss this. It says it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Turn that around and you'll realize what it means. It means God's watching it's an extraordinary thing in the people around you. If you do this kind of behavior at work, people are going to notice. But it says right here, Peter says, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. God will notice. God will see it. And he'll command you for it. So endure injustice and do it like Jesus did. Yeah, it's radical, it's absurd, it's preposterous, it's laughable, it's ridiculous. But God will notice. Question number four. How can we possibly hope to carry out this command? Well, fortunately, God never gives us a radical command and doesn't give us the power to carry it out. He always gives us the tools, the power, the equipment to do so. And Peter says there are three things that will allow us or enable us to do it. How do we do it? First, he says we need to be mindful of God. Sort of almost a parenthetic comment from Peter, but it's important. It's in verse 19. It says... For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, you do this radical, ridiculous thing of enduring injustice the way Jesus did. Mindful of God. Well, what does mindful of God mean? Well... It means being conscious of your relationship with God. It means having God at the forefront of your thoughts at all times. Conscious means you're awake and aware of God at all times, and so it's a little bit like having God in the front seat, driving the car instead of in the back seat like a passenger. And I got to believe that that Peter says being mindful of God means you're you're, you're always ready. So when you get blindsided or ambushed by your boss in some unfair way. You don't immediately react the way the culture would. You're, you're able. You're able to recall, I'm a Christian. I've got God right here in the front of my head. I can react differently. Act the way Jesus did. Secondly, how do we do it? He says we should entrust yourselves to God. See that in verse 23. It's the thing that Jesus did. He said when Jesus was reviled, He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He didn't threaten He said, but Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He says, trust God to judge justly. So this attitude is how we resist the temptation to say what our culture says. Hey, wait, that's not fair. You can't do that to me. I won't be treated that way. Because we want to be the jury, the judge, and the executioner when we get treated unfairly, right? Who's going to defend us except ourselves? Peter says, God will. Trust God. Justice is His. God will fix it in the end. God is our judge. We are not. And so we're called here really to forfeit our rights. Our rights to retaliate, to avenge, and we leave it up to God's justice. And then finally, the third reason for how we are to do it is is almost hidden, but it's so obvious it'll hit you in the forehead as soon as you read it. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, where do I get that? 24 and 25. We have these two, three sentences here. Which is, why is this here? It says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin, And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The reason this is here is that a compact statement of the gospel. The gospel runs through all that we do. The bad news is that we are sinners and are damned for hell. The good news is that Jesus died, he bore our sins on the tree, as it says in this verse, the tree being the cross. Jesus took upon Himself all of our sins, my sins, your sins, past, present, and future, and paid for them, if you trusted in Him. So that we're able to live righteous and blameless lives. Not perfect lives, but righteous and blameless in God's eyes, because our sins have been paid for. And that is the gospel. And not in this section, but in other sections of Scripture, you know that when you trust in Jesus, something else happens, to, a whole bunch of things happens to you. But one of the things that happens to you is the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart. And the Holy Spirit has power. The Holy Spirit has the power of God. And you're able to draw on that anytime you want to. And so it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to do anything, including endure injustice and do it like Jesus did. Yes, it's radical, it's absurd, it's preposterous, it's laughable, it's ridiculous. But do it, and the Holy Spirit will give you the power to do so. All right, so we did the four questions. Question one, what are we commanded to do? Endure injustice the way Jesus did it. That's the radical command. Question two, how are we to do this? We're to follow Jesus' example. And Peter lists four things. Don't sin, don't be deceptive or dishonest, don't return abuse with abuse and don't threaten. Why are we to do this? Question three, because we are called to act this way by God and it pleases God. And question four, how can we do it? Three things be mindful of God, be mindful of God, trust God to be the ultimate judge, and draw on the power of the Holy Spirit. So, that's easy. Finally, we might ask, okay, what's the point? Why do this at all, right? What's the point? Well, Paul tells us that in the introduction to this section, so we wind up right back where we started, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, where Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says we're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, and enduring injustice the way Jesus did, will proclaim the excellencies of God. It will glorify God. How? Well, imagine that you've been fired for starting an investigation of a crooked partner. Imagine that you didn't get a bonus because you refused to overcharge your law clients imagine that you went to the hospital with high blood pressure because of your maniac boss imagine that you got passed over for a promotion because you refused to prescribe morning after pills your co-worker is going to say hey whoa 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 that's not fair look what they did to you you should go talk to the HR you should write a letter you should file a grievance. You should do something. Don't you sit there? And you say, no. My boss is in a position of authority. And yes, it's unfair. I don't agree with what he did. But I'm not going to act that way. Because my boss holds authority that's granted by God. And I will submit to his authority, even though I don't like it. I'm going to go along and I'm going to do my best. And your coworker says, Really? Are you crazy? And you say, No, I'm not crazy. Actually, I'm following the example that Jesus did. Jesus was sinless and yet they killed him. But while they were going through the process, he didn't fight back or demand his rights. He didn't threaten. He didn't complain. He didn't moan. He just took it on the chin. And the Bible says that when I endure suffering the way Jesus did it, it's pleasing to God, and therefore, that's what I'm going to do. Now, that's a pretty strong message. And while you haven't said it in words, here's what your co-worker is going to hear. He's going to hear that you care more about God's glory than you do about your job. He's going to hear that you're not just some Sunday morning Christian. You take being a Christian seriously. It says that God means more to you than your comfort and your reputation. That you trust God to provide for you. That you take real risks for God. That you believe God will be a fair judge of all people. That your God is worth it. It declares God's excellencies. It brings glory to God. Endure justice. Do it the way Jesus did. Yes, it's radical. Yes, it's preposterous. Yes, it's laughable. Yes, it's ridiculous. But it glorifies God. Let's pray. Lord God, you do indeed deserve all the glory and the honor and the praise. And I thank you, Lord God, that you have given us these radical, ridiculous, preposterous, absurd commands, but you've given us the power to do it. So I pray for myself as well as others in our congregation, Lord God, that we might bring glory to you. In all ways, but this morning, Lord, to to do so by suffering and enduring injustice the way Jesus did. Whether it's in the job or in the home or in the classroom or wherever it is, Lord God, help us to do so and bring glory to you. For you are worth it. You are worthy of all glory and honor. I pray all this in the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.